Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Um, if you got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to get there here in just a bit. Uh, Like I said earlier, if you're new, welcome. Uh, My name is Kent. I'm the primary teaching pastor here at City Church, and I realize that might be a weird thing to say if you've only been coming around for the past three weeks or so, because I have not been up here during this portion of the gathering. Uh, For those three weeks, we've actually had other members of our pastoral staff and our teaching team uh, up here sharing from the scriptures for our church family. And so before we dive in, Uh, I just wanted to say a word of thanks uh, to them for filling in over the past few weeks. Uh, Yeah, we can clap for them, absolutely. I was going to do that later, but now works too. So um, yeah, so I I, I just, I feel like it's really cool and, and I feel really blessed and fortunate that we have multiple people in our church family that can get up here and share from the scriptures on Sundays. Uh, I, I think it's really helpful for me, uh, just personally, for me to have weeks off where I can sit under the teaching of somebody else uh, from the scriptures. I think that's a really healthy thing for, for pastors to get to do, probably something that more pastors should get to do and, we, and, and want to get to do. That's a sermon for a different day. Um, but I, I think it's also really healthy for our church family. Uh, just to have multiple different people up here teaching. I think especially uh, during a series like this one, uh, I think other members of our teaching team that have been up here have been able to bring some personal experience to their teaching that, that really helped bring these passages to light that we've been talking about. So even just last week, I, I was thinking about Eric sharing uh, uh, about his experience being a foreigner, really in, in two different places, uh, and how that really informs his reading of passages in the Bible where it talks about God being a protector for the foreigner. I just think that helped those passages come alive to me in ways that, that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. And, and Marcus and Jeff were able to do that in their own ways as well. So all of that to say, uh, just if you see those guys uh, this week or in the next few weeks, uh, maybe just give them a word of thanks. That's not their normal job. They did that on top of all of their normal responsibilities uh, during the week. So so that I could just enjoy having them teach. So really, they worked extra hard so that I could work less hard. So thank them. Um, it's really, really cool that they were able to do that these past few weeks. But all that said, uh, this morning, uh, I am going to wrap up this series that we've been in called Good News for All People. So in this series, if you haven't been around or um, forgot or whatever, um, this series, we're just talking about how the good news of Jesus It is particularly good news for different groups of vulnerable people in our society. People like the widow, the poor, the orphan, the foreigner. And then this week, we are going to close out by talking about a group of people that we have just simply been calling the unheard. And we're drawing that idea out of a number of different places in the scriptures, but specifically a passage like you just heard read in Proverbs chapter 31. So I'm going to read that passage again. This time I'm going to read it from a different translation. I'm going to read it from the Common English 
translation of the Bible. I just, I like the way it languages it in that particular translation. So look at the screen with me. I think we'll have it up there. It says, speak out on behalf of the voiceless or the unheard and for the rights of all who are vulnerable. Speak out in order to judge with righteousness and to defend the needy and the poor. So that passage and other passages like it, I I think really summarizes what we've been talking about for the past five weeks together as a church family. How, How we are motivated by God's character and by the message of the gospel itself to advocate and defend and provide for vulnerable groups of people in our world. And that really is what has motivated these partnerships that we've kicked off this Christmas with various organizations in our city. These are organizations that are already doing that type of work. They are speaking up for these types of people. And these are organizations that we can sort of lock arms with and help resource them to continue doing what they do so well. But part of doing all of that, these verses say, verses like Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, Part of that process is speaking out on behalf of a group of people called the voiceless. It it looks like identifying the people in our world and in our societies who often don't get a voice, who often don't have the cultural influence required to be heard and advocating for them to be heard. I think one of the most difficult parts of belonging to some of these groups of vulnerable people that we've been talking about throughout the series is the degree to which when you are in one of those groups of people, you often feel invisible to the world around you. Like your needs and your preferences don't even matter. They don't even enter into the conversation. Like your voice doesn't even get heard. And as followers of Jesus, part of embodying the good news that Jesus came to deliver is being a sort of amplifier for the voices of those people. Not speaking instead of them, but doing everything in our power to help ensure that their voices get heard when they need to be heard. Does that make sense? That's what we're going for. That's what we're talking about specifically this week, but throughout the series. So one of the partnerships that we have formed starting this year to help do this, to help enter into this call of followers of Jesus, is with an organization called Raising a Voice. So some of you may have heard of them. They actually run Likewise Coffee in East Knoxville. Uh, But as you can tell from the name of their organization, their mission is to do precisely what Proverbs 31 talked about, that they want to raise a voice for people whose voices often go unheard in our society. And one voice that goes unheard often is the voice of women in the sex industry. So Raising a Voice is an anti-trafficking nonprofit. They work with women who are being sexually exploited right here in Knoxville, as well as internationally in places like Argentina, Indonesia, Rwanda, and Kenya. Now, what's interesting to me, anytime we start talking about this topic of sex trafficking in our world, is that there's been a, a recent push just over the past maybe four or five years in modern societies to sort of destigmatize the sex industry, to insist that working in the sex industry is just a normal job like any other job. But I think what that narrative tends to leave out and tends to ignore is the amount of exploitation, misogyny, and abuse that pervades the sex industry at levels far higher than any other job. 
So here in the States, conservative estimates show that around 80% of prostituted women and girls are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. 92% of trafficked women report being subjected to physical violence in their line of work, such as being shot, strangled, burned, beaten, stabbed, or punched. Trafficked women nearly always live at or below the poverty line, while their pimps and facilitators make an average of $670,000 a year. The world of sex trafficking is a world where, by and large, men call the shots while women's voices go unheard and ignored. So obviously, this is a specific area where the call for us to speak out for the unheard as followers of Jesus is vitally important for us to do. So to help, this Sunday, we asked each of you to bring uh, different travel-sized items such as soap and shampoo and conditioner and body wash that we can deliver directly to these exploited women through raising a voice through their drop-in center. This is a way to help bestow dignity on these women in hopes that raising a voice can gain trust and help these women in even longer-lasting ways. Providing basic health items is one step in a complex, multi-step process us in raising a voice for these unheard women. So we're doing what we can to help with those efforts as a church. But what I wanted us to do with our teaching this morning is this. As we've discussed throughout this series, Jesus is our inspiration and our model for all of this. Everything that we're doing, everything that we're advocating for, everything we're asking you to participate in during this series, Jesus is our inspiration for it and our model for it. He is our inspiration for what it looks like to raise a voice for unheard people in our world. It was his advocacy for us that made a relationship with God possible in the first place, and it is his raising a voice for vulnerable groups of people in our world that lays the groundwork for us doing that. So I thought what might be helpful this morning is for us to look at one specific example of Jesus doing just that in the Bible a place where Jesus himself raises a voice for the unheard in his society. And in many ways, that is what Luke chapter 7 is all about. So in this passage that we're about to walk through for the rest of our time together, Jesus actually interacts with a woman from the sex industry of his day. And he interacts with her in the company of a group of men who are inclined to ignore her dignity and her worth as an image bearer of God. And I think there is so much that we can learn from how Jesus goes about this interaction with this woman in the passage. So take a look with me. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Here's what it says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So a Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner, which just to me sounds like the beginning of a bad Bible joke. It's like the man walks into a bar, but the Christian version of that joke. But believe it or not, this actually happened, right? So this is an actual account of Jesus' life. If you're newer to the Bible, the Pharisees were this group of people that were the ruling religious elite of their day, men of prestige, they were respected in society, and generally they were men with a good bit of cultural clout and influence. So one of them invites Jesus over to his house to eat. That man's name is Simon. Now we find out later that there were more people at that particular dinner, more, more than likely there were more Pharisees at that dinner other than Simon. 
but the one who invites Jesus is named Simon. So they're at Simon's house, they're having dinner together, and an unexpected guest shows up. Take a look with me at verse 37 in our passage. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, Back then, people's homes sometimes didn't have doors on them at all and often would just have large holes cut in the wall as windows. So theoretically, anybody could just wander in while people were having dinner together. And in this story, it tells us that a woman wanders in who, quote, had lived a sinful life. Now, in all likelihood, this was just a delicate way of saying that she was a prostitute. And her carrying around a jar of perfume would seem to confirm that, really. Prostitutes were known for carrying around jars of perfume with them. Often it was their only possession and a very practical one at that. In a society that existed before daily showers and soap and deodorant, perfume was crucial. She, she could apply it to her clients to make her job more bearable, to conceal some of the smell. She could apply it to herself so that she didn't have to bear the stench of the men she had been with on a typical day. So this perfume was her most valuable possession, both by price and by utility, by its usefulness to her. But in the story, this woman, a prostitute, wanders into the dinner party between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, just for a second, I need you to try to think about the social dynamics at play in a situation like this. The Pharisees in the room were respected, they were accepted by society. They were looked up to. People wanted to be them. People wanted to be like them. And meanwhile, the experience of this woman was most assuredly just one of shame and rejection. Likely rejection by her ex-husband or men in general that forced her into prostitution. And then more rejection by society at large because of her profession. No decent person in society would speak to this woman or even listen to her if she were to begin speaking to them. Much less would they welcome her into their home for dinner. The only doors that opened for this woman were at night in secret and in shame. But she's likely heard of this man named Jesus. She's heard of Jesus from Nazareth. She's heard of his acceptance of people from all walks of life, even those marked by rejection and shame by their societies. And so the thought probably occurs to her at some point, if I can just get to Jesus, maybe, just maybe he will accept me too. So, so she knows that this dinner party with the Pharisees present is not her scene she will not be accepted. She knows that she will likely be scoffed at and maybe even kicked out upon arrival, but this is her one shot at meeting Jesus. And so despite all societal norms and expectations, she wanders into the house while they're having dinner. Verse 38, as she stood behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, to, to make sense of this detail in the story, you, you have to know some specifics about how people ate meals together in the ancient world. So don't picture your dinner table at home with chairs all around it. That's most likely not how this situation looked. Back then, the way that you would eat a meal 
was that you would recline on the floor, maybe a pillow or a cushion on the floor. The table was low, near to the ground. And so you leaned in towards the table on one arm, and then you ate with the other arm, and your feet faced outwards away from the table. So it would have looked something like this. So this is actually a depiction of this story. Now, it's very accurate, except for everybody in this particular picture is white. I'm not sure why they thought that was accurate for first century Jewish culture. But other than that, it's very accurate, okay? This is the way that they would have been sitting around the dinner table. They're sort of leaning in towards the table with their feet facing outwards. So... My point is that when the passage says that this woman was behind Jesus while he was at the table, it means exactly that. He was leaning in towards the table. All the men are leaning in towards the table eating, and this woman approaches Jesus' feet from behind. Now, as she does that, she immediately begins to weep. This is most likely a combination of the brokenness and the exploitation that she's been through in her life, but also the shock at actually being within inches of the man who might offer her the acceptance that she's always longed for. Her tears begin to fall at Jesus' feet, so she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now remember, most places back then consisted of dirt roads, and people either went barefoot or wore open-toed sandals. So Jesus' feet are likely disgusting in this moment, and yet this is what she chooses to do. She cleans his feet, she kisses them, and then she uses her perfume, her most valuable possession, on them. Now, I want you to notice that in everything that is being said right here, the passage doesn't record this woman as saying a single word. Isn't that interesting? I mean, try to imagine for a second that you're having a dinner party at your house with people you invited, and then a stranger walks in and starts interacting with you, but they don't say anything. That would be just a little bit awkward, right? That's what happens here, but some of it is due, again, to the dynamics at play in the situation. This is a patriarchal society. Some men didn't even speak publicly to women who weren't in their immediate family. There was also a religious dimension to it. So these men were Torah-observant Jews, and she very obviously was not. And then there's a moral dimension. As we're about to see, these men were disgusted by a woman of her moral reputation being present at their house, at their dinner party. They were likely nervous that if people were to walk by and see this woman in their company, their moral reputation would be ruined as a result. We see all of this tension that I just mentioned embodied in Simon's comment. Look with me at verse 39 in the passage. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what type of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Notice how Simon cannot even bring himself to address the woman directly. He won't even give her the dignity of acknowledging her. He simply scoffs at her presence there. He he talks and thinks past her almost in the third person like she is some sort of inanimate object in the whole situation. To Simon, this woman is little more than a prop for him fuming about Jesus' behavior in this situation. So he either utters this comment about her under his breath or he thinks it to himself. Either way, Jesus is aware of it. Look at verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. 
Now, to me, this is just brilliantly worded by Luke, the author of this story. Simon's dig has just implied that Jesus isn't truly a prophet or else he would know who this woman was. But then Jesus responds to that comment about him not being a prophet by reading Simon's thoughts. Pretty prophet-like, right? So Jesus speaks directly to Simon, and he does it by launching into the sort of parable, the story that he was famous for telling nearly all of the time. Here's what it says, verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, for context, that's approximately two years' wages versus two months' wages. So think about the difference between what you make in a couple months and what you make in a couple years. That's the difference we're talking about here. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I love Simon's response here. Simon replied, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt forgiven. Very simple illustration, right? Very simple question that Jesus asked Simon. But I think Simon is already starting to see where this is going, and he doesn't particularly like the side of the parable that he finds himself on. This is not a complicated question for Simon to answer. Very, very obviously, the one who has 10 times more of a debt forgiven is going to love the lender more. But Simon is having a hard time answering this question because he doesn't like the implication of the answer. Reluctantly, he says, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. So then Jesus says to Simon, last part of verse 43, you have judged correctly. Now, I want you to pay very careful attention to the details that Luke gives us next about what happens in this passage. You ready? Verse 44. Then he, Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon. So stop right there for a second. So this is where I need to remind all of us that when you read the Bible, The Bible does not have a habit of just including completely unnecessary detail, right? So so the gospel writers did not just throw stuff in their stories for kicks, right? They didn't have like a word count that they were trying to meet when they wrote the gospels. There's something important being communicated in the details that we just read, and I want to try to show you what it is because it's important to how we understand Jesus's interaction with people who are unheard. So remember, Jesus and everybody else at the dinner party are leaning in towards the table. Their feet are facing outwards. The woman is at Jesus' feet away from the table. So think about it. She is on the outside, both literally and figuratively. Jesus and the Pharisees are the people of status at this dinner party. She is the unwanted intruder. They're important. She's unimportant. They have a voice. She does not have a voice. Does that make sense? That's communicated by how the whole situation is set up. But then here in this moment in the passage, something changes all of a sudden. It says that at this specific moment in the story, Jesus turned toward the woman. Now, in order to do that, he would have had to have essentially turned his back to Simon and everybody else at the table. So all of a sudden, this woman is accepted and they are rejected. She's the person of interest, they're the intruders. 
She's important. They are simply in the audience at this moment. And Jesus is about to give this woman a voice. Continue with me in the second part of verse 44. Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? Okay, so there's so much being communicated in that one short question from Jesus. Do you see this woman? Because obviously there, Jesus does not just mean, can you physically see with your eyes that this woman is here? Of course Simon can see that, right? She's in his house. He's already making comments under his breath about how she's there. Of course he sees that she's there. But Jesus doesn't mean, can you physically see her? He means, do you see her? Do you perceive her, Simon, as a human being? As a person with a story, with a soul, with dignity and honor and worth as an image bearer of God, Simon, do you see her like that? Would you have a conversation with her? Would you listen to her and see her as your equal? Would you let her sit at this dinner table like I am and share a meal with you? Do you see her? And the implication in Jesus asking the question, obviously, is that Simon does not see her. Simon does not see this woman as an equal with him at all. Now, some of you know in the room today, some of you know from personal experience what it feels like to be physically present somewhere and yet not be seen by any of the people there. Some of you know what it feels like to be present in someone's life while at the same time being barely acknowledged by that person. Being seen as, as less than, as unimportant, as insignificant, as not worthy of people's time or attention or effort or affection. That is what Jesus is drawing out here. Simon sees the woman present, sure, but at the same time, he doesn't see her at all. He's not acknowledging her. He doesn't want her there. He doesn't want her to be present at this dinner party. He actually wants Jesus, judging by what he said, he wants Jesus to correctly identify who she is and dismiss her and kick her out of the house. In, in his mind, in Simon's mind, he belongs there and she does not. He's having an important dinner with Jesus of Nazareth and she is just an interruption. But Jesus is about to turn all of that on its head. Continuing in verse 44, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So what, what Jesus cycles through here are, are all very basic, minimal signs of hospitality in his ancient culture. Very basic, minimal signs of hospitality that Simon has omitted, evidently. Again, because of the dirty roads, when someone came to your house, you would usually have one of your children or maybe a household servant wash their feet for them. It says that Simon didn't even give Jesus a basin of water to wash his own feet. You would kiss your guest as a greeting, but Simon gave Jesus no kiss at all. You would often give your guest oil for their head, but Simon doesn't do that either. Simon neglects to show Jesus even the minimum threshold of hospitality as a guest in his home. 
So this would be sort of like if I invited you over to my house to get to know you for the first time and you showed up to my house and you knocked on the door and I'm sitting in my recliner and I say, uh, hey, door's open. And then you come in and you're kind of wondering what's going on and I go, hey, food's in the kitchen. And you go get the food and then we just sit there in silence and watch football as you hang out at my house for the first time. That's the posture that Simon has here towards Jesus. Everything Simon does communicates a complete lack of interest and even basic decency towards Jesus as his guest. And Jesus contrasts that posture with that of the woman. She has done all the things that Simon has neglected to do, even though she has far fewer resources than Simon has. Simon has no excuse, and she has every excuse, and yet she has shown tremendous love and welcome towards Jesus, despite how few resources she has. Which brings Jesus to his conclusion, his grand finale, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So Jesus takes the unacknowledged in the room, the, the voiceless, the unheard, the unseen in the room, and he holds her up as an example. He lifts her up as a beautiful picture of what it means to love God and experience his grace and forgiveness. He not only defends and legitimizes her actions, but he inverts every power dynamic present in the room at the time. The men become the ones who need to learn from the actions of the woman. The religious become the ones who apparently have no religious devotion at all. The morally upright become the morally bankrupt, while the sinful woman displays a true, authentic, extravagant love for God. Jesus doesn't just stop at, hey, calm down, Simon. It's okay for her to be here. He goes a step further. He goes, Simon, this is what a righteous life looks like. This woman who all of you won't even acknowledge in the room, she understands far more about God's mercy and forgiveness and grace than you do. You should learn from her. And then he does what no one in the story has done yet. He speaks directly to the woman. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Everything you've done, everything you're ashamed of, everything you've been told boxes you out from the kingdom and family of God. Everything that seems like it's followed you and defined you for the past who knows how many years of your life, all of that has been forgiven, taken care of. It's all gone. It's not who you are anymore. It's not what you're about. It's not what defines you. You have been granted total and complete pardon from the king of the universe and complete and total welcome into his family. You are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? That's Pharisee for you can't do this, Jesus. 
The dinner party is now in an uproar. These Pharisees demand to know why Jesus just did what he did and by whose authority he claims to do it. Jesus ignores all of this and simply says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is how Jesus treats the unheard. This is how Jesus interacts with the voiceless. This is how he speaks for those who are not being seen and not being heard by the society around them. This is how he acknowledges the forgotten and the overlooked around us. This is the God that we serve. And when passages like Proverbs 31 say that we too should speak out on behalf of the unheard, this is what they mean. When the scriptures say that we should join God in advocating for the marginalized, this is what they mean. They mean giving dignity where society does not. They mean giving honor where others do not, giving acceptance where others do not. And as we've been saying throughout this series, and we'll say again, this all comes from realizing what Jesus has done for us first. He has entered into our brokenness. He's entered into our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness, our trauma, and he has extended his healing hand of forgiveness towards each of us. Precisely because Jesus has done that for us, we can and should do that for others. So, Although this is a bit of an odd passage to cover at Christmas time, just if somebody asks you what the Christmas sermon was about at your church, just say, we talked about a prostitute, and just see what they respond to that with. Even though this is an odd passage to cover for our last gathering before Christmas, I would say it is actually a perfect Christmas passage. Because for followers of Jesus, what we celebrate around Christmas every single year is what theologians call the incarnation of Jesus. In other words, the idea that God himself, God on high, put on flesh and came into the world as the man, Jesus. And what more perfect way to reflect on the incarnation of Jesus than observing how Jesus interacts with the voiceless, the unheard, the people that get looked over, the people that get forgotten. When we look at Jesus in a story like this one, we are witnessing the incarnation of the God of the universe. We're seeing God's heart and God's posture towards the broken put on flesh and blood. We're seeing a living, breathing example of everything we've talked about in this series when it comes to God's heart for vulnerable groups of people. If you want to know how God feels about vulnerable groups of people in our society, you simply need to read a passage like this one. This is who our God is, and this is what he does. This is Jesus. This is God in flesh. And remember, for followers of Jesus, the, the incarnation is not just something we remember at Christmas time. That's a particular time that we focus on it, but it's not the only time that we think about it. The incarnation is something we celebrate every single day of our lives. We celebrate it by remembering what Jesus did for us, and then we embody it when we put on that posture towards others. Every time we care for the sick, we sacrifice for the poor, we lift up the broken, we lend a voice to the unheard in our society. Anytime we do any of those things and more, we are remembering and celebrating the incarnation, the day that God himself put on flesh to seek and to save the lost. 
This is what we're called to as followers of Jesus. It's a beautiful task that he's set before us. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this series, even though our partnership with these organizations begins this Christmas, it begins by us bringing these different items that we've been bringing to the gathering every week, that's not where those partnerships end, not at all. Our life groups individually and our church as a whole will continue to partner with these organizations in the coming years. We'll, we'll give, we'll serve, we'll give of our time and effort and energy and resources. We'll meet whatever needs we can help them meet in our society, but we will do it all because of the incarnation of Jesus. Because this is who our God is, the friend to prostitutes and sinners, and this is who he has made us by his grace. We don't just celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. We celebrate it every day that we follow Jesus into the brokenness of our world. So I want to just end here. Um, I, I know in this series we've kind of been focusing on, you know, these particular groups of people in our society that these organizations are doing a great job working with. And like I said, we're going to continue that. Um, but I want to just ask and, and kind of feel compelled to ask. I'm sitting in my notes for this morning, but I, I just feel compelled to ask, uh, is there brokenness other places in your relationships in your world this Christmas that maybe you can bring the spirit of the incarnation into? So I, I know a lot of us are probably about to see family uh, for Christmas. Uh, some of us are excited about that. Some of us are very not excited about that, just if we're honest. Um, but man, if, if I know anything about kind of the, the demographic that our church serves and the people that we shepherd, I, I know that's going to bring up some brokenness for a lot of us. Um, I know a lot of us, when, when we get together with family for the holidays, um, we're going to be thinking about all the reasons that the brokenness is there. Or maybe you're not getting together with family at all, and maybe that's because of the brokenness that is there, because there's not, you know, there's not trustworthy relationships there. There's not life-giving relationships there. And so maybe your Christmas will be spent mostly alone because you're trying to avoid encountering any and all of that. Or maybe it has nothing to do with family. Maybe it's, it's your workplace. Maybe it's um, your friendships. Maybe it's classmates. I, I don't know. I, there, there could be dozens of different scenarios in this room, but I, I can almost assure you that in the coming weeks, all of us are going to come face to face with some brokenness, maybe in us, maybe in others, maybe in the society around us. And so I, w without being able to go into a whole different sermon on how we do that, I, I just want to ask, um, could we consider what it might look like to bring the spirit of the incarnation into those moments. I, I don't know what that needs to look like for you. I, I, I don't know who that needs to be with. I, I don't know any of that. I, I'm just asking if, if the God of the universe entered into the brokenness that we created in order to set us free from our sin and our brokenness, what might it look like for us to do that in response? 
Do that in a way that makes sense to you. Talk to your life group about it. Get them to speak wisdom into how you do it and and what that needs to look like or not look like. I I trust you to do all of that. But I just want to ask you, if that's what Christmas is about, if it's about God putting on flesh and coming to seek and save the lost and coming to repair the brokenness of our world, what does it look like for us to do that as well? Through these partnerships with these organizations, but also just in our everyday lives. Well, just give us a a little bit of space to consider that this morning. If you want to go ahead and put your stuff up and bow your heads, close your eyes, whatever you need to do. Um, I just want to give us a moment of space and Ben, y'all can come on up. I just, I don't want us to end a series like this a season like this without asking the question, what does it look like for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And so maybe if if you're willing in this moment, um, if that connects with you on any level, maybe just just ask the Holy Spirit right now, um, Spirit, what does that look like for me? What does that look like for my relationships? We're just going to give you a moment to ask that question if you're willing. What does that look like for me? Father, we uh, come to you this morning um, very, very aware of the things in our world that aren't as they should be. Maybe that's in us. Maybe that's in others. Maybe that's in people we're going to come into contact with. Maybe that's in our family, our workplace, our circle of friends, whatever it is. God, for most of us, it's a, it's a combination of all of that. And so, God, I, I want us all to remember that, um, that there is space um, in a season that can sometimes be um, 
overly concerned with excitement and happiness and bright colors and um, energetic songs and everything else. God, there is room in that season for us to be very, very aware of the brokenness of our life and our world. That's what the very first Christmas was about. Light into darkness. So God, maybe the first step for a lot of us is just to create space in our mind and our heart and our weekly rhythms as much as we're able to just grieve the things that aren't what they should be. To grieve the brokenness that we see in every direction around us. God, this whole season is, it's about you coming to rescue and redeem what is broken. And so if we can't acknowledge that things are broken, if we can't sit in it and grieve it directly to you, then we're going to struggle how to see how you enter into it and do anything about it. And so God, would you just help us to start there? Would you help us recover the, the lost Christian art of lament where we grieve and we say, God, this isn't what it should be. And I'm mad about it. I'm frustrated by it. I don't understand it. So God, would you help us to do that? And God, would you help direct that towards you in such a way that we can see and savor and appreciate all that you came to bring? God, the fact that you did not stay distant and removed from us, but you put on flesh, you entered into the brokenness of our world, and you began to repair it step by step, relationship by relationship, moment by moment. And so God, I want to pray that this Christmas season would be a season of hope, but not like the happy songs talk about. I want to pray that it would be a season of deep, soul-level, visceral hope that acknowledges the brokenness of our world and at the same time acknowledges that the story doesn't stop there. It doesn't have to stop there. And so, God, we say with believers throughout the centuries, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make everything right about our world. Repair what is broken. Heal what is off in us and in our world. And God, we want to pray that you would do that today. That we would recognize it when you do it. That it would create worship and awe and wonder in us for you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You are the healer to the broken. You're the provider to the poor. You're the defender of the widow. You're the protector of the foreigner. And you're the voice to the unheard. God, would you help us embody that message this Christmas and always as followers of Jesus? Would you make us agents of reconciliation that our world so desperately needs? Would you come and would you set things right and would you do it through us?
give you praise and honor and glory for all that you are, for all that you've done, for all that you're going to continue to do. We ask this in your name.